Pastor James also set the scene last week of the Christmas story. Rome was wanting to take a census and, uh, so that they could tax everybody, basically. And, and so Jer- Joseph and Mary ended up in Bethlehem. And Mary gave birth to Jesus in a stable, possibly on the first floor of a, a residence or an inn where the animals would be kept. And she lays him down in a manger there. And we see in Luke 2 that some shepherds, we just, Isaac just read, some shepherds are minding their own business in a field in Bethlehem, right? And some angels show up to announce the birth of who? A very wealthy king in a nearby mansion whose noble parents are about to throw a huge celebration, parade in the streets of Bethlehem, right? Maybe not. But that's what everybody in Jesus' day would have expected if a king's birth had been announced. Because in Jesus' day, and I'm sure still today, that kind of announcement would be made with pomp and with ritual and with celebration. Probably a parade, probably a feast. So we do see excitement here, though. We do see celebration, but it's not in a way that we would have expected or anybody would have expected. No king in history had ever had angels announcing their birth. But also no king in history would have been born into poverty. No king would have been born in a stable. And and a king certainly would not be given an animal's trough as a bed. This was not an ordinary king. This was not an ordinary royal announcement. This was bigger, this was grander, this was a grander announcement than any king had ever been given before. Angels filled the sky and the glory of the Lord shone around them. This announcement was out of this world and this king was literally from out of this world. He was sent from God the Father, we know that. It's repeated throughout the New Testament and also Um, by Jesus himself in the Gospels, the most famous of this being John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? Jesus was sent by the Father. And so the angels are announcing the birth of a king, and we see throughout the Christmas story that the announcement is again and again made by angels to, to Mary, to Joseph, and then here to the shepherds. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that it's always angels? Well, what do we know about angels? We know from their name alone that they are messengers. Anglios is the Greek word, which means angel, and, and which, which is where we get our English word angel. Actually, it means messenger. And so... Specifically, it means one who brings a message. And uh, we can know more about angels in Hebrews 1. It tells us a little bit about angels. And specifically in verse 14, it says, Angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Another translation says that angels are servants, spirits sent to care for people who will inherit salvation. So we know that they are messengers, servants of God, tasked with caring 
for followers of God. How they care for us, we don't really know, but hopefully one day we will understand. The important thing for us to hone in on here is that one of the primary tasks of angels is to be a mouthpiece for God, to communicate something from God to human beings. And so, so God sends an angel. We're not told who. We're just told that it's an angel of the Lord. And the angel Gabriel had been sent to Zechariah and to, to Mary. So some scholars assume that it was Gabriel, but we really don't know. And so this angel tells the shepherds that the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. And the question arises out of everyone that God could have sent an angel to, to tell of the birth of Jesus, why did he choose shepherds? Shepherds in Jesus' day were rough, dirty men of the land. They lived outside in tents from about March to when it gets cold in November. And so, not to burst anyone's bubbles, but that's why scholars believe that Jesus was actually born in the spring. Um, but Christians have chosen this time to celebrate Jesus' birth. Anyway, shepherds in this period had an unsavory reputation. They were one of the lowest on the totem pole in society. In, in the time of Israel's history, most shepherds took care of sheep in the wilderness, far away from towns and cities. So they were kind of on their own. And people regarded them as dishonest and thieving. Shepherds could not be a witness in court. They could not fulfill a judicial office. And they could not enter the temple they were considered unclean. So maybe we don't understand fully why God sent angels to these shepherds to announce Jesus' birth, but we can see in Jesus' ministry that this is exactly the kind of people that he was going to minister to. Jesus befriended and pursued the unclean, quote-unquote, and the outsiders of Israel. And Pharisees criticized him for it. They called him a friend of sinners. And that was not a good term. That was meant in a derogatory way, not a good way. But how did Jesus respond to this criticism? We see in Matthew 2.17, it says, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so isn't it interesting that God chooses the announcement of the birth of Messiah to the kind of people that Jesus' ministry would be about. God isn't interested in what human beings consider to be clean or successful or powerful. So announcing the birth of Christ, so in announcing the birth of Christ, God is also announcing a new way, a new path, not an earthly way, not the sinner's path, but a new path, a new way, his way. The angels are not just announcing the birth of Jesus. They're announcing the ushering in of the kingdom of God. A kingdom where rich and powerful are last and poor and humble are first. God's way, God's kingdom is a complete reversal of how humanity has functioned and how Frankly, humanity continues to function. Back to the angels. Let's look at that announcement in more detail. I want to break this down a little bit. 
So I bring you good news. This phrase is actually one word in Greek, and it's, a ver- it's the verb form of the noun gospel. They're both from the same root. So basically the, angels, the angel is saying, I'm bringing you the gospel of Jesus, which is a gospel of joy. And throughout Luke, joy is often associated with salvation. And this gospel, this good news, is for everyone. For unto you, it says, or for you, as some translations say, is born today, is born this day, today, in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There are three important titles referencing Jesus here. Savior, Christ, and Lord. And I want to look at each of these one, each of these titles. Jesus is Savior. The Greek word here can also mean deliverer. Jews in Jesus' day would have known that the Messiah's role was to deliver Israel. Now, because they were occupied by another country, Rome, all Jews in that day would have expected that that meant delivery from Rome. That if Messiah came, it would mean Rome would be booted out of Israel. But we know that that was never God's intention for Messiah. In another Christmas passage, Matthew one twenty one, we read that an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and tells him that Mary will have a son that he is to name Jesus because he will save people from their sins, it says. The name Jesus is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means God saves or God is salvation. So even his name shows us who he is. And he has come, or rather he has been sent, not to release Israel from their earthly oppressor, but to release them and all people who call themselves his from the oppressor, sin. Last week, Pastor James talked about how God keeps his promises. And one of the promises that God has made to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, this is from Ezekiel 36, is that he will deliver them from all their uncleanliness. So this is This angel in Luke 2 is indirectly announcing the fulfillment of this promise to the shepherds. A savior, a deliverer has been born. He's going to deliver you from your uncleanliness. And the angel is telling this to maybe the most unclean people in Israel. But God is trying to show us through the story that this is not the type of uncleanliness that needs to be dealt with. Maybe we it's, it's important, right, to wash our hands, especially with COVID now. But um, the real uncleanliness, the uncleanliness that drags us down and ruins our lives is sin. God is not in the business of whitewashing tombs, just cleaning the outside, making things look good on the outside. God is in the business of cleaning out the tomb cleaning death from out of the tomb and saving us from the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is always going to be sin. Until Jesus returns, it's always going to be 
a problem of sin. It's not millennials. I can say that because I'm Generation X. I'm not millennial. <laughs> it's not bad presidents. It's not even the coronavirus. It's sin. Sin is the root of our problems. And we need to be saved from it. Jesus is our Savior and our Deliverer. So a Savior who is Christ. Let's look at this term here. The word here is Christos, which means anointed one or Messiah. And as we heard from Pastor James last week, Israel has been told of the coming Messiah for centuries earlier. 700 years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah gives us almost two dozen prophecies about the Messiah. Let me give you a few examples. Chapter 7, verse 14 of Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, this is one of the most famous prophecies. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. One more. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So these are just a few of the prophecies about Messiah from Isaiah. And there's dozens more throughout the Old Testament. Psalm, Micah, Hosea. The whole Old Testament is filled with them. Moving to the next title, Jesus is Lord. This title is given to Jesus by the angel. And the Greek word here is kurios. And it means master. Uh, It was also used as a title for respect. But when kurios is used to refer to God, it's a title that means one who is in supreme authority. And I think Colossians 1, 15 through 18 does a good job of helping us understand what Jesus is Lord truly means. Verse 15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Jesus is Lord, whether we choose to call him Lord or not. And the angel announces his title to the shepherds because Jesus is already the sovereign ruler of the universe. And he's been sent to earth to be our savior and our deliverer and our anointed king. And this will be a sign for you, the angel says, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What would the shepherds have been thinking at this point? An angel appears, an overwhelming 
an overwhelming situation, right? And then the glory of God surrounds them, even more overwhelming. The angel announces the birth of Messiah, the anointed one, who Israel has been waiting for for centuries, but he's somewhere near here sleeping in an animal's feeding trough. What would they have been thinking? If we were there, we might be thinking, how could the Savior of our nation be lying in an animal's feeding trough? But the shepherds roll with it. Okay, whatever you say, we'll go check it out. We don't see the shepherds questioning the situation at all, do we? How do we see them responding? We see them saying, come on, let's go, let's go check it out. If God is sending angels to tell us about this, something's, something's got to be going on. Something must be happening. So I want to break this all down, and I want to talk about how everyone is responding to this announcement. So the, f- the first responders are the shepherds. How did the shepherds respond? They responded in belief, right? They heard, the, an angel, they heard the angel's announcement. They were terrified, but they heard what the angel said, and they believed, and they acted on that belief by going to Bethlehem to find the Messiah. And then when they come back, we read in verse 20, they glorified and praised God for all they had seen. There's another group that responds to this announcement, and that's the angels that appear after the first angel. Verses 13 and 14 say, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So number two, who, is, who else is responding to this announcement? The host of angels. And how did the host of angels respond? Well, first of all, what is a host of angels? The Greek word for host here means army. So it says a multitude of the heavenly hosts appeared, literally a large army of angels. I'm guessing hundreds, if not thousands of angels filled the sky and they began to praise God. And why are they praising God? The angels are praising God because they're responding to the announcement of Messiah. This is the biggest event in human history, and they can't contain themselves. This is it. This is what all the prophecies were about, and they're being fulfilled. The angels are rejoicing at what God has done in sending his son to be the savior of men. The angels have a heart for God. They want what he wants. I'm sure they've seen the suffering and the chaos that sin has brought to men. And they know that God is going to turn things around. Maybe they don't know all the details at this point, but they know that men are lost and they need a savior. And God is starting something new. God is stepping into the history of men. And, and the angels are praising God because of this. They know that the end result will be God's glory. He moves, people turn to him, and he is glorified. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, praising God is the proper response to all of this. 
not only for the believer, but for all of creation. The shepherds believed, and when they returned from seeing the baby Jesus, they glorified and praised God for all they had seen and heard. Praising God is the proper response, not only for those who believe and respond correctly, like the shepherds, but for all of creation, and the angels are God's creation too. The third group of people or person who responds to this event or this announcement of Messiah is actually someone who's not in this Luke story, but I think it's worth looking at this person's response, and it's King Herod. Matthew 2, 1 through 8 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of, of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Judea are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, you sh for from you shall come a ruler who will rule my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he said, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And then skipping down to verse 13, the wise men have found Jesus and have been warned in a dream to avoid Herod. Verse 13, it says, Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So how does Herod respond to the news that Jesus, the true king of Israel, has been born? This isn't the same kind of glorious announcement. There's no angels. There's no glory of the Lord shining around him. But it is still an event. The, these wise men, these foreigners from far away, have seen a sign in the stars that a king will be born. And that's kind of miraculous in itself, that God goes into such detail that even the stars declare his work. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And I know this verse is talking about through creation, we can see that there's someone behind this creation, but I think it's also talking about this as well. But the wise men show up at Herod's door, and I'm sure they had an entourage we know by the gifts that they gave Jesus that they were very wealthy. So it's not just three guys on camels showing up. This is probably a huge scene when they arrive. And so how does Herod respond? Herod believed. Herod actually believed this announcement that a king had been born. If Herod had not believed the wise men or the prophecy that the chief priests and scribes showed him from Micah, we read that in verse 5, then he wouldn't have done anything. He would have just ignored it and he would have moved on. But he didn't do that. He reacted. 
And before I talk about that reaction, I want to talk about this point a little further. Herod believed, but there's something here that we need to understand. Just because we believe that God exists or believe that prophecies from God are real, like Herod here, doesn't mean that we're believers or Christians. I think follower of Jesus is a better synonym for Christian. James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Even demons believe in God. Of course they do. They believe that he exists and they hate him. We don't become Christians by believing that God exists. We are Christians because we follow him. I met up with an old high school classmate years ago. This was after I hadn't seen him for a while. And we went to a Christian school. So we were Christians, right? Anyway, I started talking about my faith. And I hadn't been going to church for a while. But I had recently started going back because God was doing something in my heart. And I shared that with him. And he said to me, I still believe in God. So I asked him what that meant. And it didn't really mean anything, to be honest. His life wasn't different because of his belief. He struggled with crack. He was bouncing from job to job. He was in and out of relationships with women. And I really wanted to quote this verse to him. I really wanted to tell him, you may believe in God, but you're not a follower of Jesus. But I didn't. Like I said, I had recently come back to faith in God, and I was still trying to figure things out for myself. But the more that I've thought about it, the more that I've realized that's not a good excuse. And I really regret not sharing that with him. I think sometimes we as Christians think we need to be in this perfect place before we can share our faith with others. And that's just not true. We need to be honest about our walk with God. And maybe that can be a testimony to others. Maybe that can be a testimony to our, other, to our Christian family, to our friends, and to our friends and family that don't know Jesus. So what I, what I was getting at before was that we can't just believe that God is real. We can't just believe that God sent Jesus to die for our sins. It actually has to mean, it actually has to change us. And if it doesn't change us, then it doesn't mean anything. You, we won't, if we don't give up our way of doing things for his way, then it doesn't mean anything. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. In that verse we just read from James, even the demons believe and shudder. James is saying that to prove his point, that faith without works or without fruit, without evidence, is dead. If we believe that there is a God, but we aren't prepared to offer our lives to him, then we're not really followers of Jesus. Let's get back to Herod. Herod believed the news about Jesus, but he didn't respond the right way. He didn't respond with humility. He responded with anger, and he was responded with fear. Verse 3 of Matthew 2 says he was troubled. 
Herod felt threatened. Herod was a pagan who had converted to Judaism. He was installed as a king by Rome, and he believed that he was the real king of the Jews. He liked being king, and any threat to that needed to be stopped. And Herod saw this news from the wise men and the prophecy from Micah as a threat. He was not happy. So much so that we read in verse 13 that Joseph was warned in a dream to flee. And a few verses later, we see that indeed Herod does kill all boys to and under. So Herod believed and responded, but he responded with evil. There's a final group who responded to this news, and we also read about them in Matthew 2, and it's the scribes and the chief priests. How did the scribes and chief priests respond? Well, we can assume that unlike Herod, they didn't believe. Herod sought the baby through the wise men, or so he thought. The wise men also had a warning, right, in a dream and avoided Herod. But it seems like the scribes and chief priests didn't do anything. They didn't really believe. They seemed to ignore the whole thing and forget about it. There's no story of the scribes and chief priests visiting Joseph and Mary. They must, have, they must have seen the wise men and their entourage arriving. They knew Micah's prophet, prophecy, but they disregarded it. I'm sure in their pride they thought, how could pagan wise men know more about our prophecies than we do? And we know how prideful the Pharisees and the scribes and chief priests were because of their interactions with Jesus. We read about that in the Gospels, and Jesus calls them out several times. We can see one of the most blatant examples of this in Matthew 23. Verse 13 says, this is Jesus speaking, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And then verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is also what Jesus came to do. He came to save us from our sin, yes. But he also came to show us what God's way is. The Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the religious leaders that were were supposed to teach the people of Israel God's way. But they didn't. Whatever they were doing was not God's way. And Jesus calls them out on it. He shows everyone what God's way is. He shows everyone that God's way is being a servant. God's way is loving the Father with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So how are we supposed to respond to this announcement? What can we learn from the responses of all of these people? Well, from the shepherds we can learn that we not only need to respond in belief, but we need to respond in action. 
I know Herod responded in action, the wrong action. But the shepherds not only believed, they sought out Jesus. And that's exactly what God tells us to do, right? In Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The shepherds sought Jesus, and then they went back to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. We need to seek him with all our hearts. And when we truly find him, we won't be able to contain ourselves just like the shepherds and just like the angels. They couldn't help but praise God. They were so happy to celebrate what he was doing. Their hearts were aligned with God's. They wanted what he wanted. And we need to ask God to give us hearts that want what he wants. But there's more. John 3.16, we all know this verse, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And then John 20.21, this is Jesus speaking, he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We need to seek God and when we find him, we need to teach others how to seek him too. For God so loved the world, if our hearts are so are aligned with God's heart, then we will love the world too. Jesus was sent here to save us from sin. He was sent here to bring us into his kingdom. And he was sent here to show us the right way to live. But it doesn't end there. We are also messengers, just like the angels. And Jesus is sending us to bring good news to all people that will be great joy for all of them. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray.